Okay, so we will move swiftly on and look at the subject of what Craig calls the absurdity of life without God. He's got a whole chapter in the book on it. And I'll combine that with uh, the moral argument, because the topics fit together very nicely. And actually, I'll argue, although Craig seems to see talking about the absurdity of life without God as a sort of useful preparation for the gospel by making people see the significance of the issue and that it really does, God really does make a difference. Um, he doesn't seem to think that there is much of sort of positive apologetic value to be gained from talking about this topic. But I think that there are things of positive apologetic value as well. Um, so once again, I will incorporate what, what Craig does, but argue a little broader than Craig does, and partly by putting together this material with, with defending the, the same kind of moral argument that Craig um, defends as well. Ooh. That was interesting. Okay. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, or Nietzsche, or Nietzsche, depending on how you want to pronounce him. Fantastic moustache. Uh, 19th century German philosopher. Um, and I have a dramatic reading of uh, the parable of the madman from also spake Zarathustra. Um, read by the Indian apologist uh, Ravi Zacharias, who's good at doing these kind of things, existentialist apologetics, um, which really nicely, I think, sets the scene. So here's Ravi doing uh, the parable of the madman from YouTube. morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I'm looking for God, I'm looking for God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing together there, he excited considerable laughter. Have you lost him then, said one. Did he lose his way like a child, said another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage or emigrated? Thus they shouted and shouted and laughed him to scorn. But the madman sprang into their midst and pierced them with his glances. Where is God, he cried. I'll tell you, we have killed him, you and I. We are all his murderers. But how have we done this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us a sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving now? Away from all suns, maybe? Are we not perpetually falling backwards and forwards, sidewards and in all directions? Is there any up or down left? Are we not strained through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not more and more night coming on us all the time? Must not lanterns be lit in the morning? Do we not hear anything yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we not smell anything yet of God's decomposition? God's decomposed too, you know, and God is dead. He remains dead and we have killed him. Now, how shall we, the murderer of all murderers, compose ourselves? That which was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has ever possessed has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood from us? With what water can we purify ourselves? What festivals of atonement 
What sacred games will we need to invent? Is not this the greatest of deeds too great for us to handle? Must not we ourselves become God? Simply to seem worthy of it. There has never been a greater deed, you know, and whoever shall be born after us for the sake of this deed shall be part of a higher history than all history hitherto. Here the madman fell silent and again regarded his listeners. They too were silent and they stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern to the ground and it broke and went out. I come too early. My time has not yet come. This tremendous event is still on its way, still traveling and it has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars requires time. Deeds require time even after they have done before they can be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than the distant stars and yet they have done it themselves. It has been related further than on the same day this madman entered diverse churches and there sang a requiem, Eternum Dale, led out and quieted, he said to him, retorted each time, what are these churches now if they are not the tombs and sepulchres of a dead god? We have killed him. <clears throat> so, uh, Nietzsche arguing that the death of the believability of the concept of God uh, has implications that are big implications, particularly sort of in the area of um, ethics. That whole thing about when we killed God, we kind of wiped away the horizon. Is there any up or down left anymore? Aren't we just straying through an infinite nothing with no sense of direction or purpose or uh, standards by which to judge things objectively? go back to our discussion of the transcendental values um, and really um, Craig and um, other uh, apologists who would use this approach would say we agree with Nietzsche about that we agree that giving up on God does have these consequences uh, we just think that um, we shouldn't give up on God <laughs> that these consequences are actually not true to the way reality is um, but we see the connection there um, Nietzsche um, heavily criticised um, particularly English ethicists of the 19th century for giving up on the idea of God but wanting to keep a very Christian uh, view of ethics so that we can get rid of God and just keep everything else the same and be nice tea drinking English academics who are all very you know, nice to one another and it's all fine um, and he was really saying, no, if you get rid of the foundation that the, the worldview has been built upon, everything has to, has to shift. So Craig says, one of the apologetic questions that contemporary Christian theology must treat the, in the doctrine of man, or humanity, is the significance of human life in a post-theistic universe. Is there any significance, meaning, purpose, etc.? The apologetic for Christianity based on the human predicament is uh, a recent phenomenon, primarily associated with Francis Schaeffer from the 1970s and early 80s. But Craig notes that there are examples of this kind of thinking going back to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, for example, or the writings of the French philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal. 
And Craig calls this approach existential apologetics. Uh, much of its analysis, he says, uh, is drawn from the insights of 20th century atheistic ex- existentialism, French existentialism, is particularly kind of Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus and um, the absurdity of life in a godless universe and so on. So here's a quote from uh, Schaefer again. It says, modern man, uh, this is Craig summarising Schaefer's view, modern man uh, resides in a two-story universe. This is a, a central image from Schaefer's thinking. In the lower story is the finite world without God. Here, life is absurd. In the upper story are meaning, value, and purpose. Now, modern man lives in the lower story because he believes there's no God, but he cannot live happily in such an absurd world. Therefore, he continually makes leaps of faith, blind faith, that is, into the upper story to affirm meaning and value and purpose, even though he has no right to since he does not believe in God. Uh, This is a recent book, Saving Leonardo, from Nancy Piercy, who's um, a sort of uh, disciple of Schaeffer's, as it were. And she, like Schaeffer, talks about this sort of upper story of meanings and values and purpose and the lower story of how people actually view reality. Um, And she adds that what is often talked about in terms of the, the, the so-called fact-value distinction. People will talk about there are facts and there are values. Of course, implicit within that is the assumption that values are not facts and that facts are valueless. And there's this kind of bifurcation between the two. And Piercy says, OK, the, the modern concept is that there are values... And those are private and subjective and relative to the individual. And basically, these are things that are invented by human beings or cultures. And then we have facts, and they're public and objective and universal and discovered by the methods of science. So science tells you the truth about the world, a world that doesn't contain any values or meanings or purposes inherent to it. And then private individuals are free to have their own private, you know, religious or spiritual beliefs as long as they keep that in the private sphere and don't impose that on the rest of society. She says the strict separation of facts from values is the key to unlocking the history of the modern Western mind. People have always known that there is a distinction between is and ought, between what you are and what you should be, between uh, descriptive statements and normative statements. In earlier ages, however, people thought both types of statement dealt with questions of truth. Uh, Not only was a fact about how things were, there were facts about how they should be, how you ought to behave, and so on. If you made a moral statement about what someone ought to do, it was either true or false. So... They thought there were facts about ought statements, even though obviously there is a difference between ought and just descriptive is statements. So, you know, science will be able to say things like, you know, if you um, 
apply red-hot pokers to the, the feet of prisoners. They uh, will react in a certain way and uh, will find it difficult to walk for X number of weeks afterwards. Okay, and that's an empirical observation. But that doesn't tell you whether it's right or wrong to you know, put red-hot pokers on the feet of your prisoners. Um, and opinions about whether that's right and wrong, and that's just a subjective matter of opinion. You know, one culture might, might treat prisoners that way. Our culture doesn't. But you know, we shouldn't impose our values because that's just a private, subjective thing. That's where this kind of view leads to. And you might think, as I do, that that's a bit of a reductio of the view in and of its self. So you end up with things like this is Peter Atkins, who's an atheist, a chemist from Oxford Uni in the UK, one of the so-called new atheist writers. He says, the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality, the only way of acquiring reliable knowledge. Um, It it is, of course, a, a a, a view of how we know things that contradicts itself. Because if you ask him, how do you know through the methods of science that science is the only way to know anything, (laughs) you see that the answer is, oh, well, I don't know that through science. This is just my philosophical viewpoint on how you know stuff. And it's a self-contradictory one. But it leaves him to say things like this. This is Peter Atkins uh, from his new book, On Being. And he says, um, when the sun dies, we shall have gone the journey of all purposeless stardust, driven unwittingly by chaos, gloriously but aimlessly evolved into sentience, born unchoosingly into the world, unwillingly taken from it, and inescapably returned to nothing. Such is life. You know, this is his kind of view of the world through the glasses of science, Uh, viewed as the only way of knowing anything. Scientism, really. But of course, when he says things like uh, gloriously but aimlessly evolved, he he seems to be using a sort of evaluative term. He seems to be making some sort of aesthetic judgment about the nature of reality. Um, But he can't mean it objectively speaking. This is, if we take him as being consistent with his own worldview, this is just purely his subjective reaction to this chaotic purposeless universe that it is strikes him as being glorious but it's not actually glorious to think it's actually glorious would be to be making an objective judgement about it that science of course wouldn't be able to substantiate and so he can't think that it's a substantiatable claim that he's making there on the other hand, you might think maybe that uh, he is unable to live consistently with his view of things. Despite what he says science is telling him about the nature of reality, he nevertheless have th- has this view, sort of looking at the vastness of the universe and so on, so on that there is something glorious about reality. Um, and so maybe there's a bit of a kind of chink in his view of things there um, that this uh, intuition of of reality as it is maybe reality is glorious and this is striking him so hard that it's still coming through despite his sort of official way of looking at things that would seem to mean that he can't really 
say that and mean it. And I find that an interesting issue, but it, it all comes from this scientism fact value distinction. But actually, one, one issue is, well, can we live consistently as human beings with that viewpoint? Um, and if we can't, that at the very least might motivate the search for a, a worldview of spirituality within which we can live consistently. Um, basically because we would have this intuition, which we would, maybe people would question this, but it seems to come down to this intuition that being consistent and uh, kind of being able to live a sort of integrated life and worldview is itself a good thing, something to be desired if it's available. Um, so here is um, a little clip from uh, 1998 where William Lane Craig and Peter Atkins were having a debate uh, they're going to debate again this year <laughs> um, but this is from their post-debate discussion and this issue of, of Atkins sort of saying science is the only way to know anything comes up and uh, Craig uh, dismantles it rather thoroughly the fact that science is on and the fact that I can understand why people like you desperately want to be That is an argument against it. But two fallacious arguments put together, that's still made a similar argument. But you deny that science cannot count gravity. Yes, I do deny that science. So what can't it come from? Well, I, had you brought that up in the debate, I had a number of examples that I was going to give. Uh, I think there are a good number of things that cannot be scientifically proven, but that we're all rational to accept. Let me list, let me list five. Logical and mathematical truths cannot be proven by science. Science presupposes logic and math, so that to try to prove them by science would be arguing in a circle. Uh, metaphysical truths, like there are other minds other than my own, or that the external world is real, or the past was not created five minutes ago with an appearance of age, are rational beliefs that cannot be scientifically proven. Ethical beliefs about statements of value uh, are not accessible by the scientific method. You can't show by science whether the Nazi scientists in the camps did anything evil as opposed to the scientists in Western democracies. Aesthetic judgments, number four, cannot be accessed by the scientific method because the beautiful likelihood cannot be scientifically proven. And finally, most remarkably, would be science itself. Science cannot be justified by the scientific method. Science is permeated with uh, unprovable assumptions. For example, in the special theory of relativity, the whole theory hinges on the assumption that the speed of light is constant in a one-way direction between any two points A and B. But that strictly cannot be proven. We simply have to assume that in order to hold the theory. But this is well, well, you your Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, none of these beliefs can be scientifically proven, and yet they are accepted by all of us for that. Um, so quite a thorough demolishing of the idea that science can know absolutely everything and anything that can be knowable is knowable through science. Uh, Craig mentioned Pascal, um, whose book, uh, Thoughts, Ponsies, is just a collection of notes that he had made for a book he was going to write, but never got to write because he died young. Um, but it included amongst them uh, thought number 46. He says, uh, men despise religion. 
they hate it and are afraid it might be true. And of course he's talking about Christianity here. He says, to cure this, we have to begin by showing that, that religion is not contrary to reason. So we must at least do defensive apologetics. It should be made lovable, should, be, should make the good wish it were true, then show it is indeed true. So he's kind of saying we have to get people to see Christianity as something that is attractive. They, they kind of think, oh, I, I wish I could believe that in good conscience, and then show them that they can believe it in good conscience, which obviously kind of ought to lead them to believing it if they already want to, but they're kind of holding back for, think, for fear of thinking, well, you know, I don't want to chuck my brain out at the door. Um, but this combination of attractiveness plus showing that it's reasonable, working um, hand in hand. So back a little bit to our more holistic vision of, of apologetics there. And he's also saying that, that maybe we need to do the other thing first. Before yeah. The truth question, maybe if, if, if they desperately don't want it to be true, mm. it's going to be so much harder mm. to give the reasons yeah. if, if we make them wish it yes. were true. Emotionally, if they're open, mm. it, it's a lot easier job the rest of mm. yeah. Mm. Now, Craig says that this kind of existential apologetic quote is not concerned with uh, epistemological how-we-know-stuff issues of justification or warrant. Indeed, in a sense, it does not even attempt to show in any positive sense that Christianity is true. It simply explores the disastrous consequences for human existence, society and culture if Christianity, or perhaps more precisely theism, should be false thinks that by showing that a godless universe is one lacking meaning and purpose uh, and that a theistic universe would be a universe of meaning and purpose one can make the good wish theism were true thereby motivating people to search for the truth about God because uh, again this is sort of straight out of the Schaefer kind of playbook, uh, Craig says it's impossible to live consistently and happily within a naturalistic worldview. He says, if one lives consistently, he will not be happy. If one lives happily, it's only because he's not being consistent. <laughs> he says, but you can't have your cake and eat it. You can't do both. Uh, long quote from Nick Pollard, but I won't read it, but um, Nick Pollard's book Evangelism made slightly less difficult. Um, quite uh, very ch- much chimes with the Schaefer kind of approach uh, to um, helping people to think through their own worldviews and see the inconsistencies and difficulties with them to make people dissatisfied with what they already have as a spirituality as a way of motivating them to more seriously consider Christian spirituality Uh, that's basically what that book uh, by Nick Pollard is about evangelism made slightly less difficult which is a great title (laughs) saying evangelism is not easy but Here's an approach that might make it slightly less difficult. <laughs> English uh, understatement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How to succeed gloriously in evangelism. <laughs> that, that, the, American. the American title. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we can't use the title. No? It's, in Norwegian, uh, it's, we translated it into Norwegian. Mm. It's, it's sold very well compared to similar books. Mm. Uh, talking about faith. Yeah. <laughs> With heart and mind. Heart 
and mind, not not just relating emotionally, yeah. but bringing also your mind into mm. where the people are. Mm. So it's a, it's a good book. Mm. Uh, well. Now let me structure this by looking at two aspects of what's called nihilism. This is really the the alternative that we're looking at. And I wrote a book a few years ago called. Uh, I wish I could believe in meaning a response to nihilism, which this is drawing on. Uh, and a lot of my stuff that we were talking about, um, truth, goodness and beauty and so on, is in that book as well. I wish I could believe in meaning. Uh, two aspects. One, life has no objective intrinsic purpose. It's not goal-directed or teleological, as Aristotle would have put it. And secondly, life has no objective meaning. Uh, I'm really, by meaning there, I'm meaning objective values of goodness and beauty. Because we often talk about, we have the English phrase, the meaning and purpose of life. And and I think those two parts of the phrase are there for a reason. That you could have um, one without the other. You can go into the relationships there, but you could have um, something that had a purpose but not a, not a positively meaningful purpose. When we're asking, do, you know, does life, is life meaningful? Um, we wouldn't be very satisfied with the answer, you know, well, yes, you know, because we were created by an evil demon as his playthings to be tortured for eternity. So... You do have a meaning. Yeah. <laughs> now, what we're really asking is, is there a, a good purpose to life? Uh, is there a, a, a meaningful, a, a good, a beautiful uh, uh, value to our existence and does that existence have an intrinsic good beautiful purpose uh, to it uh, mm. um, it seems that, that uh, Craig has three here mm. we, we don't have to go into that mm. he, he seems to separate he seems to have a third one with focusing on moral values Dividing even, yeah, even more. But but uh, I think we, we'll just stay. We kind of bundle them yeah. Yeah. again, as in a lot of these discussions. You can yeah. kind of, as long as you know how someone's cutting up the territory, as mm-hmm. it were, yeah. you can follow the conversation. But realizing that different people can seem to be talking at cross purposes or talking about different things, mm-hmm. simply because they're they're dividing up the discussion in slightly different ways. So, um, you know. James W. Sire means something slightly broader by a worldview than uh, Ronald Nash means by a worldview, and I mean something broader by a spirituality than than either of those two things. But they all overlap and incorporate, you know, <laughs> to each other. So the golden purpose question: Can there be an objective, a given, an innate purpose for life, without, as it were, a purposer of life? The, obviously, the answer to that is no. Um, illustration: What is the, the the purpose of a gravestone? Okay, if I ask the question, point it and say, "What's the purpose of this gravestone?" You would find it easy to give me an answer. Yeah, holding the lid down. No, <laughs> holding the lid down. Um, giving giving notice of who it is that's buried here and when they died. Being a memorial it might have several different purposes, but it, it has a sensible answer to that question. If I then point to a pile of leaves and twigs and chocolate wrappers that's sort of blown by the wind around the graveyard and ended up in one corner, and I point to the pile of rubbish and I say, what's the purpose of the pile of rubbish? 
purpose of illustration. Well, but yes. yes. <laughs> but see, not the, 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 the purpose of my concept here is yes. of illustration, but the yes. pile of rubbish itself, you would say, hey, that's a nonsense. It doesn't have a purpose. It's just happened by accident. No one intended it for a purpose. Um, it's just a, at most, it's the byproduct of things that have purposes. So the equation would seem to be no purposer of something, no purpose. Okay. So Peter Atkins acknowledges this. He says, if, as I believe, the creation of the universe was an agentless act, then it was necessarily purposeless. For there can be no purpose if there's no agent. Or uh, Kai Nielsen, another atheist philosopher, if there's no God, there is no purpose to life. You weren't made for a purpose. So it seems pretty clear and agreed on all sides that life doesn't have a purpose if it doesn't have a proposer, if it doesn't have a creator. Um, and that, you might think, is a pretty significant consequence of denying atheistic worldview. You can also kind of spin it around there. I love this co- uh, quote from G.K. Chesterton. He said, this world of ours has some purpose. And if there is a purpose, there's a person. There's a proposer. Um, so if you have an intuition, perhaps, um, that actually there is a purpose to existence, then the only way to make sense of that is to think that there is a proposer of existence. You can't consistently think that there is a purpose but no proposer. Um, so there may be an argument to be developed in this area, not simply by saying, look at the consequence of denying God, that, that would mean there's no purpose. Well, that, that's just as much as to say, if you think that there's a purpose, then you've got to think there's a proposer. Um, and maybe one might be perfectly rationally justified in thinking that there is a purpose uh, to life. Meaning, in, in the sense of value, particularly moral value, and you could mount some sort of parallel arguments with relation to beauty, I think, but uh, obviously relates to the moral argument for God. Um, because as, as we started off with that quote from Nietzsche, sort of saying, you know, is there any up or down left? We've wiped away the horizon. There's no sta- external standard for making judgments about things. Uh, Nietzsche would agree that if you, you get rid of God you get rid of the idea of good and evil. He said they they all stood together. Um, So Nietzsche would at least agree with the first premise of the moral argument here. If a god does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. It's just that he would then say, there isn't a god, and there aren't objective moral values. But he at least accepts the connection between the two. So... One important clue here is about objective, because yeah. even if people don't believe in God, they they do have values deep in all cultures, even mm. Viking culture, by mm. the way. Yes, yes. They did have some moral values. Yeah. So, so it doesn't say that you need Christian or theistic God to have values. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So the the issue here is. 
how we explain the existence of objective moral values if we think there are such things. The issue is not how do we know about the objective moral values that we think exist or um, how do we obtain the ability to obey the objective moral values that we see exist. You know, the, the, the Christian theist and the atheist can both agree yes, you know, torturing small children for the fun of it is objectively morally wrong. We know that and um, we both have the ability not to torture small children for the fun of it. You know, uh, it's simply that the, the theist in using the moral argument is turning to the atheist and, and saying this objective moral value that we both agree exists and that we know about and that we should obey and that we can obey how do you explain what kind of thing it is and how it exists in, in your worldview? Because I don't think it really fits your worldview. Indeed, I think it fits my worldview <laughs> and not yours. And it's at that level that the, the discussion is so, going on. So we, we could say that, okay, the atheist has values... He knows right from wrong, yeah. but he can rationally defend it from his worldview. World while Christians can, <coughs> can um, rationally mm. uh, defend their... Well, even slightly more, for example, there's a, a great book by an atheist called um, Russ Schaefer Landau called Whatever Happened to Good and Evil. And he does a great job of defending the existence of objective moral values. He says moral objectivity is true. And here are the arguments against it and why they don't work. And here are some arguments for it. You know, um, intuition, it makes sense out of moral disagreement. It makes sense out of the fact that um, we think there can be progress in society because there can't be progress unless there's something you're progressing towards, some standard and so on. And I think he does a de decent job of, of arguing that there are objective moral values and that we can know this and defend them against objections. So in that sense, I would say an atheist can rationally defend the objectivity of moral values. But it's when it comes to the sort of metaphysical question of, okay, where, where do they fit within your kind of account of the nature of reality, of being? What sort of thing is a moral value? if it's an objective thing. Where does it exist? Um, you, you'll notice that a moral value is something that prescribes how we ought to behave, tells us what to do. That doesn't sound, sound like a, a law of nature, like gravity or something. Hello! That's a student coming. Hi, hey, hi. Well met. Hello. He's from Norway. Mm. Yeah. Martin. Mm. And he has been to communication worldview course mm. Mm -hmm. to the UK. Lydia is from Romania. Mm -hmm. And background in, in media. Mm. Good. You want to join us? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Nibbles on the table. And here is even. Uh, Norwegian, 
Ikea Swedish. So it's, uh, Ikea. be careful, be careful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we're basically in the midst of looking at the issue of what Craig calls the absurdity of life without God. And I'm tying that into the discussion of the moral argument for God. And we've looked at the issue of there can't be a, a given purpose for life if there was no one behind the existence of the universe that intended it to exist. And that means if you think there is a purpose of life, the only way to be consistent is to think that there is a proposer of life. So there might actually be an argument for God to be made out of this issue, where Craig seems to put it as saying, look what a significant difference not believing in God makes. Look actually how unlivable and terrible that view of the world is. That should at least motivate you to think seriously about a theistic view of things. And I'm kind of saying, yes, that's true, but also you can actually even turn this issue into a more positive argument uh, on purpose and on meaning, i.e. goodness of stuff. And that's why I'm trying the moral argument into it. And we, we started off looking at a little bit of Nietzsche, parable of the madman from, from Nietzsche's Thus Spake Zarathustra, and saying that um, Frederick Nietzsche would agree with premise one of this moral argument. He would say, yeah, if God doesn't exist, then there are no objective moral values, the kind of moral values that we discover rather than invent, as it were. It's just that he would deny the, deny the conclusion by denying the next premise. He would deny, he'd say, well, now, since there isn't a God, there aren't any objective moral values. And I'm prepared to kind of swallow that. But for anyone who's not prepared to kind of pay that price tag of um, rejecting the objectivity of moral values, then they might be persuaded by this argument to think, okay, there are objective moral values, but there wouldn't be if there wasn't a God. So there must be a God. Um, straightforward sort of deduction from those two things. And you can find you can find atheists who accept premise one, but reject moral objectivity. And I was just talking about an atheist called Russ Schaefer-Landau, who does a very good job in a book of his called Whatever Happened to Good and Evil, of defending the objectivity of moral values. Um, I, defending them against objections, arguing that there really are objective moral values. It's just that I think when it comes to giving an account of, well, what kind of thing is a moral value and how does that fit into my sort of description of reality, my worldview, then it all falls apart uh, because of the kind of arguments that people would use to, to justify premise one. Well, okay, if an objective moral value exists, what sort of thing is it? Where does it exist? Um, it prescribes our behaviour, tells us what to do. Laws of nature, like gravity or whatever, they describe how things are. They don't tell us how things should be. But if nature is all that there is, you know, my evolutionary history, say, might have happened to give me the feeling that rape is wrong, okay, and have made that taboo in society because, say, societies that include a lot of rape don't out-survive societies that are taboo about it. It's an interesting question in and of itself in terms of the survival value of, you know. Um, But none of that would mean that 
you know, it's, it's, I'm not really being commanded by my evolutionary history to behave in a certain way or not. It just happens to have given me this feeling. It didn't mean to. It's not really telling me not to rape. Once I sort of give that kind of evolutionary explanation of why I feel that way, why society is structured this way, and you kind of add the naturalistic, and that's all there is to it, you seem not to have explained the moral value so much as explained it away. I said, no, it's just a subjective thing. It's not really the case that it's true to say that rape is wrong and that we ought not to do it. And that we... When you bring in a naturalistic worldview, then the moral value seems to disappear. Where do you fit it? How do you account for the fact that moral values tell us what to do if the only kind of reality is this impersonal reality, fundamentally? Or what about obligation? Aren't I obligated to behave in certain ways and not to behave in other ways? But aren't obligations things that only make sense in, in a relationship between one personal reality and another? I'm not obligated in any way, shape or form by this table. And yet I am obligated not to rape people. Okay. <laughs> um, but if you have a materialistic matter-first worldview, wait, even if you think minds are things that genuinely exist, you don't think they come into existence until... You know, late on in the history of the universe, and you know, I'm not absolutely obligated by me or by you or by society. Societies can be wrong. Can a society get its moral values wrong? Can societies make moral progress towards an independent standard of, you know, when we got rid of slavery, was that a good move? <laughs> when you're appealing to some standard above and beyond what the society happens to believe or think or feel or decide or whatever. Um, and yet, where do you put that obligation in, in reality when you've excluded putting it in society or you or me? You put it in atoms? Put it in the law of gravity? You put it in the Big Bang? You know, Where do you put it? Um, on the other hand, if there is a wholly good person behind reality who relates to us, commands us, obligates us, who is a mind that can contain a moral ideal of how things should be as distinct from how they just are, that seems to make sense of the, the concept of an objective moral value. And I was just clarifying that the question here is not you need to believe in God in order to believe in the difference between right and wrong or to be able to say I know that torturing small children for the fun of it is wrong or to be able to behave in the right way and a lot of atheist writers straw man the moral argument and bring the moral argument up and people like Richard Dawkins will say but atheists are good people Atheists can do the right thing. I know that loving my wife is a good thing. And the, the, to which the only reply kind of is, yes, fine, but that was not my argument. <laughs> my argument was you can't give a coherent, sort of ontological, metaphysical account of this fact that we both agree on, that torturing small children for the sheer fun of it is objectively wrong. Um, actually, Dawkins is an interesting case because in other places he'll deny that there are any objective moral values. He's a... Uh, moral subjectivist as an atheist but you know there are atheists who are not 
Um, so some atheists buy by premise one, but not two. Some would buy into premise two, but not one. No atheist buys both premises, because if they did, they'd stop being an atheist. Um, <laughs> so, you know, what if, what if both camps are sort of half right, as it were, <laughs> in the right direction, then they're, they're all fundamentally wrong. Um, so I've sort of covered some of this ground about prescriptions, obligations, um, ideals that transcend people. There are a number of independent arguments that can be given in defence of. Another argument is uh, about guilt, that it, it, we're sensibly guilty when we break the moral law, even if we're the only person that knows about it. it and it, is that simply our subjective reaction to a taboo about society, a sort of psychological reaction, or is, is it actually true that, no, actually, when we trans- transgress an objective moral value... We are, objective, we are, objectively speaking, guilty. And the whole concept of, of guilt and, conversely, of, of forgiveness for breaking an objective moral law would tie into the concept of an objective person behind it before whom we are guilty and who therefore has the right to forgive us. So you can, you can tie this into a gospel presentation fairly directly from, from those concepts, perhaps. H.P. Uh, Owen, Hugh Parry Owen, is a Welsh philosopher, isn't he, look you? Yes. No. H.P. Owen uh, puts it like this. He says, on the one hand, objective moral claims transcend every human person. They go above and beyond every human person. On the other hand, it's contradictory to assert that impersonal claims are entitled to the allegiance of our wills, that we can be obligated to do what something that's not personal appears to command. How do we kind of put these two together on the one hand and on the other? He says the solution to this paradox morality has to be in relation to persons, but objective morality transcends human persons the solution to this paradox is to suppose that the order of objective moral claims is in fact rooted in the personality of God because he would fulfil both criteria at once transcending us and being a person being personal Um, and you have to have he says a satisfactory account of objective morals has to fulfil both of those criteria you know, persons could could account for the the person rel- uh, related nature of morality, but not for the objectivity. Um, some impersonal material reality or law of nature could account for the the sort of givenness of it, the objectivity, its independence from us in that sense, but not for the fact that morals are things that are intrinsically kind of relational. Uh, so it's one of these areas, quite like it, it's one of these areas where you can quote atheist after atheist agreeing with one, one of premise or the, or the other. Um, Jean, this is Jean-Paul Sartre. Craig mentions, he says, existentialists find it extremely disturbing that God no longer exists. For along with his disappearance goes the possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven, kind of out there. 
there would no longer be any a priori good, since there'd be no infinite and perfect consciousness to conceive of it. So there's Jean-Paul Sartre backing up one of the arguments for accepting premise one. Uh, British atheist Julian Bugini is there's, if there's no single moral authority, no God, uh, we have to, in some sense, create values for ourselves. And that means that moral claims are not true or false. This fact-value distinction that we started with. You may disagree with me, but you can't say that I've made a factual error. Um, Oxford atheist J.L. Mackey said, if there are objective moral values, they make the existence of a god more probable than it would have been without them. Thus we have a defensible argument from morality to the existence of a god. Of course, Mackey's an atheist, so he says, if we adopted instead a subjectivist account of morality, this problem would not arise. Phew, we've escaped, you know. (laughs) All we've had to do is say that it's not true to say that torturing small children for fun is wrong, you know. Um, (laughs) Phew. That's a small price. Yeah, you know. But it does come down to, do you pay that price tag or or not, really? Um, (laughs) Whichever, you know, which is the bigger problem, as it were, having to believe in some kind of a god or having to believe that moral nihilism is true, that there are no facts about values. Um, Dawkins goes even further, perhaps. He says there's this non-overlapping, exhaustive distinction, just as Nancy Piercy was talking about at the beginning. And he says, between ideas that are false or true about the real world, factual matters in the broad sense, and ideas about what we ought to do, normative or moral values, for which the words true and false have no meaning. He's always going to a sort of logical positivist position of, it's not, not even that they're, <laughs> they have no meaning as concepts, because they're not factual in the narrow sense of, of being sort of empirically, scientifically knowable, again, like Peter Atkins. So you, it's fascinating. If you take Dawkins at his word, when he says things like this... Um, then you read him elsewhere saying things like this Hitler and Stalin were by any standard spectacularly evil men it's it's really hard to kind of bear in mind that he doesn't mean it (laughs) (laughs) because he seems to be saying that by any you know Hitler and Stalin were spectacularly evil men but it's interesting that he sticks in the middle there by any standards because (laughs) he doesn't believe there are any standards in the sense of objective standards all he can really mean, if he's being consistent, which of course he might not be, but if he's being consistent, surely all he can really mean is by, by the subjective standards of what I happen to like, or my culture, or what will fly in the, in the common room at Oxford. What my peers will let me get away with saying, as Richard Rorty puts it. And Richard Rorty, a postmodern philosopher, says, truth is whatever my peers will let me get away with saying. To which my reply is, I'm not letting you get away with saying that. Um, so does, does he mean this? Does he really kind of bite the bullet? As we say, is he prepared to swallow that and say, OK, no, Hitler and Stalin were only evil relative to a subjective standard that's not true? Or does he really want to say Hitler and Stalin were evil? As he seems to want to say about religious believers when he says you know the evils of religion the evils of faith I want to warn people against the evils of religion what does he mean by evil there if he really thinks they're evil 
how does he then square that with his worldview? But if he doesn't really think they're evil, then he's just you know imposing his relative subjective values on everybody else. Um, atheist Peter Cave, whom I had the pleasure of debating with fairly recently, um, he's an atheist who's a moral um, objectivist, it would appear, uh, although he's also a nihilist. Uh, I, I, I haven't quite managed to sort of sort this out yet. You read him in some places and he comes across as, as very objectivist, and in other places and it all seems to be sort of everything's absurd and nothing's meaningful. Can't quite put that together. But he does, for example, argue whatever sceptical arguments might be brought against our belief that killing the innocent is morally wrong, we're more certain that the killing is morally wrong than that the argument for subjectivism is sound. Torturing an innocent child for the sheer fun of it is morally wrong, full stop. I think that's a perfectly decent argument to to say. It's such a basic, properly basic belief, as Alvin Plantinga would put it. Torturing small children just for the sheer fun of it is morally wrong. That's such a strong basic intuition. It puts such a burden of proof on the person who's sceptical of this that they'd have to have, you know, basically any argument, at least thus far, that's been brought forward for being a moral subjectivist just doesn't seem to be strong enough to overcome the inherent kind of obviousness of the fact that <laughs> you shouldn't torture small children for fun, you know. Um, I think that's it. So, as I was saying, in that sense, an atheist can do a perfectly good job of defending the existence of objective moral values. It's just I don't think they can account for the existence of those objective moral values that they can defend. Um, some moral views are better than others despite the sincerity of the individuals, cultures and societies that endorse them some moral values are true, some are false my thinking them doesn't make them so individuals and whole societies can be seriously mistaken when it comes to morality the best explanation of this is that there are moral standards not of our own making which kind of begs the question of who's making, but that gets us into an interesting discussion, as we say in the Euphrates dilemma. Um, the theistic view, I think, should not so much be that the answer is, well, of God's making, mm. as if God just made up moral values randomly, which would make them arbitrary. Mm. It's not that anybody makes them up, but they, they are grounded in the very nature and essence of God's character, which yeah, is... You know, essential, necessary, unchanging. He issues his commands to us, uh, obligates us in line with the moral values that are part of his very essence and character. Um, this is a quote from a last called Teresa Vining. Uh, it seems to me uh, very affecting and getting a bit more to the rhetoric of it, of it here. She's talking about her personal experience of going through a kind of crisis of faith at college coming to believe that their nihilism was true, there was no meaning or purpose or values in anything, but really kind of asking, getting to the point of saying, do I really believe this? Can I really live with, with this? And it's quite moving. She says, there is no God, I told myself. No real meaning. No basis for knowing what is right and what is wrong. It doesn't matter what we do or how we live. There is no foundation, no right and wrong, no hope. She's buying into this nihilistic worldview, taking Dawkins and Peter Atkins at their word. 
No. Something deep inside of me screamed. It could not be true. I couldn't believe that life was just a sick joke with humans and their capacity for love, appreciation of beauty, and need for meaning as the pitiful punchline. That went against all my experience as a human being. There had to be something more. That night was the beginning of a new, no-holds-barred search for truth in my life because the one thing I did know after that night was that I couldn't believe that this life is all there is. Something deep inside me seemed to testify that somehow good is better than bad and love is better than hate and that must be something more than just a sum of atoms. So really kind of going down into the depths of trying to, as Schaefer would say, push people to the, the logical outcome of their non-Christian worldview. And sometimes that can result in people saying, okay, if I, if realizing that I'm trying to be consistent with this non-Christian worldview of things, but actually I get to the point of realizing, no, I, I can't. I, I really don't experience life in that way. It really doesn't square, doesn't hold together somehow. doesn't mean they immediately then jump and say, oh, well, Christianity must be true then. <laughs> um, but it does mean that you restart that search for a view of the world that will be consistent with this basic, uh, properly basic uh, belief in you know, there really is a difference between good and evil, love and hate, Maybe there really is purpose and meaning in life. What view might that imply? Um, you know, that in and of itself isn't going to get you to Christianity, but it's certainly a very short hop away from theism in general, with a purposer behind the universe who, whose character is good um, and ties very nicely in with the, the moral argument. Um, one additional problem for the moral subjectivist: this is the person who said that you know there are no objective moral values. Frederick Nietzsche asked, why should you pay attention to the truth? If someone wants to argue for moral subjectivism, or they want to argue for nihilism, okay, they seem to be presupposing that I have some kind of obligation to seriously consider their argument. Some sort of obligation to... Um, recognise that if I consider their argument for nihilism and I see that the premises seem to be more plausible than their denials and they logically entail the conclusion that nihilism is true then I should come to believe in nihilism but of course nihilism is the view that there is no such thing as an objective should or an objective obligation and so the whole process of considering an argument for becoming a subjectivist or a nihilist, there seems to be a certain sort of tension or self-contradiction within that very process. So not only could I perhaps say with um, Peter Cave that this, this intuition of, of, of moral, certain clear moral examples is so strong that it beats any argument for subjectivism brought against it just because it's, the burden of proof is too big to be met at least in practice, that actually even the, the process of thinking that it's possible to meet that burden of proof seems 
off-kilter. Because how would it be possible to meet a burden of proof in, by justifying a view that denies that there is a, such a thing as, as a, a burden of proof that one ought to be trying to meet, as it were? And I think that really kind of sticks the knife in an extra few inches here. Moral subjectivists would contradict themselves if they claim that people objectively ought to believe the conclusion for any argument for moral subjectivism. So that's... Let me put the, the relationship between the concepts of God and meaning and purpose in... I think there are four sort of arguments that could be constructed for two basic answers here. You can kind of rearrange the premises in different logically coherent manners... So the first answer might be to argue from atheism to nihilism. And of course, as a Christian, you can think that this argument is a good one. Logically speaking, you just deny that the, uh, in this case, the second premise is true. So premise one, life is objectively meaningless and purposeless unless God exists. Premise two, God does not exist. Conclusion, therefore, life is objectively meaningless and purposeless. This is what kind of Nietzsche was arguing. Or you could argue from a belief in nihilism to atheism. You could kind of say, life is objectively meaningless and purposeless unless God exists. Life is objectively meaningless and purposeless. Therefore, God doesn't exist. Although, of course, you're under no obligation to consider or change your mind on the basis of this argument the basic answer here is clearly atheistic nihilism, there's no objective values only subjective ones, no objective goals or purposes, only subjective or extrinsic ones um, William Provine from America, no gods, no purposes no goal directed forces of any kind no life after death, no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning for life no free will for humans either here's a very hard line Nihilist. Thirdly, you could argue from theism to meaning. So life is objectively meaningless and purposeless unless God exists. Premise two, God does exist. Therefore, life is objectively meaningful and purposeful. Uh, Craig says Christianity succeeds precisely where atheism breaks down. And he argues if the evidence for these two options were absolutely equal... A rational person ought to choose biblical Christianity. It seems to me positively irrational to prefer death, futility and destruction to life, meaningfulness and happiness. This is sort of Pascal's wager kind of argument. We're saying if you think that the evidence for these two worldviews is equally balanced, so the evidence doesn't point you one way or another, then surely the rational thing to do is to say, well, I, I can live consistently and happily with one of these views. I can't live consistently and happily with the other one. I've got to choose one or the other, because I either am going to live as if nihilism is true or as if it's false. So what am I going to do? You know, what's the rational thing to do in that situation? And he's kind of saying, well, pretty obviously the rational thing to do is to um, go with your consistent, happy, life-affirming view. It's nothing against reason in doing that. It's a bit similar to William James's will to believe argument as well. Uh, it's kind of aimed at the rationality of soft agnosticism, in a sense. 
fourthly, you could argue from meaning to theism. This is why I say this, this can build, build, build into a bit more of a positive argument than, than Craig uses it as. Again, premise one, life subjectively meaningless and purposeless unless God exists. But if you think premise two is true, that life is objectively meaningful and or purposeful, and we've seen that atheists can give good arguments for the, the value component of that at least, then it would follow that you should think God exists. Um, so I think it, it actually ties into the positive case uh, as well basic answer, theism and the meaning and purpose of life according to Jesus, back to we had earlier um, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all your strength and your neighbour as yourself sure. um, it would be interesting to, to hear from your context um, in terms of uh, how, how prevalent, how uh, how often do we meet uh, atheists that, that represent nihilism? It, it, um, like in Romania, would, would, would many people say that there is, there is no objective purpose, there is no objective right or wrong? Would, would there be nihilists in, in universities or, or um, in youth culture maybe? I, I don't think there are I mean, we, we still have some um, academics from the communist regime mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. who used to teach uh, maybe Marxism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and that's actually not meaningless. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and now, the, the, this transition period mm -hmm. from communism to uh, democracy, um, I think nihilism is not so so pleasant. Okay. Um, and mainly because of the political and economical political situation. Mm -hmm. um, many people think that there should be something else because this is not right at all. Mm -hmm. S something uh, similar to that uh, lady who, mm -hmm. who had that experience. So um, this is what we we observed in, in the last 10 years, mm. I think, there were some uh, very influential intellectuals who uh, somehow publicly converted to a, a personal relation to uh, Jesus. Mm. Yeah, uh -huh. Because they said, okay, this, this world is really wrong and our life experience mm. uh, were not what we were told they, they would be. We mm. were definitely not the, uh, the superior men that the communists uh, mm. proclaimed. And we saw communism, we believed in it, we, we truly believed in it, we practiced it. And this is uh, where we are. So mm. this was wrong. It should be, there should be something else. That, that's very interesting. And I think that the... <coughs> Attitude or the mood of society is very important here because mm. some points, so the, the society is where, where we need values. Mm -hmm. Some other points, they they tend to be more relativistic. Uh, mm. Well, subjectivistic, uh, but but if if big morally bad things had happened, it, it's a lot easier. 
to kind of admit the objectivity or the need for objective moral values. Martin, what you say about but Norway or Norwegian academics? Yeah, uh, I haven't talked with a lot of people just around this issue. I have the impression, impression sometimes mm -hmm. that the question get treated more like a mind game. soul to it no. mm. um, and then it's like easy to say that ah, it's more possible that there is some kind of solution than there that there is a god mm. Um, mm. Um, you can question is it really yeah <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah but I have the impression that you don't want to, want to like live into it mm. uh, this you know, one of the things Norway is most famous for, you know, are beside oil, mm. one of the things we're most famous for is it anything else? It's uh, black metal or, or <laughs> really, really hard rock music. Mm. It's very special kind of groups that are they're very, very harsh and negative and it's called death metal or is it I'm, I'm not, I, I don't know these uh, but but some of them used to be very nihilistic mm. and, and aggressive and uh, mm. so, so like the group that uh, won Eurovision two years ago mm -hmm. mm. yeah I think I very scary looking and yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. lyrics and yeah. very aggressive. Some of these groups can be can be different. Mm. Some of them are kind of nihilistic. Others are. I heard uh, some article just just this week about there's been some development, but some of those groups are advocating the the old Osatru, mm. the old Norse uh, belief. We don't know how serious they are, mm. but it's not. It's not like there are no values, but let's go back to the pre-Christian mm, mm. Odin, Thor, and uh, yeah, and, and I think that is an interesting phenomenon. Mm. Speaking about mm. uh, good, good. I, I, I sorry, I, I think now after after the recession. I'm not sure if we are after the recession, mm. but <laughs> you hope. yeah, um, I think nihilism uh, is gaining more. Um, public recognition and some people uh, are, are saying okay th mm. there is no purpose we lost everything mm. and there is no meaning okay. but yeah. This, yeah this could be um, both ways people who, who try to find an, an explanation for for their life but mm. then i think nihilism is, is gaining more uh, mm. more uh, Mm. I sometimes see some kind of a double, like um, mm. some kind of subjectivity. Um, like that's my opinion. Mm. That's my thought. thought. Um, um, so, so, like it's it's subjective and it's reasonable um, and it's common at the same time. I, mm. I sometimes mm. smell a little bit cards. Like you, I uh, wanted to be subjective, and I wanted to be objective. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. 
fundamental. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Either it's subjective, I have an impression, or mm. it's something. There is something. Uh, there is objective um, mm. values. Mm. There is something that's wrong, but I don't want to go further. Mm. Yes, in, into thinking that through too much yeah. and too much detail mm. perhaps because of where that line of thinking might seem to fairly obviously point mm-hmm. um, it's kind of as long as, as sort of my life is going okay and I can just kind of live without thinking too much about it I don't need to worry too much about the fact that maybe I'm, I'm living a sort of inconsistent mm-hmm. Craig saying you know I, I can be I can be um, happy and inconsistent or I can be consistent and not happy but not both <laughs> um, and um, certainly one, one way to you know just to avoid the issue uh, allows you to sort of just keep leaping up into Schaefer's upper story when, when you whenever you feel like it um, depending on yeah depending on you know who you're talking with and what you're doing and <laughs> who will let you get away with it but yeah the, the idea that you're sort of actually doing evangelism simply in saying saying to someone, are, you know, are you really being consistent? Are you really living what you, what you believe? Tell me more about what, what you believe and what it, what it entails. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, you really do think that the, the fact that you're a materialist means that you don't have free will or you don't believe in objective moral values. Like, yeah, that's interesting. Do you, do, you, do you live... How do you find living like that? You know, it must be tough. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. um, do you do you really swallow it all the way down to the to the dregs, mm-hmm. or are you just sort of sipping at the froth at the top? You know. <laughs> yeah. so, um, I think I think this is is uh, quite an important tool in apologetics. Thinking of about well, talking about people where they are. Mm. Um, what would you think from from the context you you're from? How would this kind of argument be relevant or, or helpful to the people you you meet? I think that, it, could, it could be helpful for for young generation. Because uh-huh. I think at, at this point they're somehow confused. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and we we did have an increase in um, suicidal attempts. Mm. I'm not sure okay. if uh, nihilism um, could be held uh, accountable for that, but mm. um, I think it could be. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I once actually looked into the sort of statistics and the psychology of of kind of spiritual boredom and, and nihilism and, and suicide and different cultures and worldviews and, and so on. I'm fairly convinced that there is at least a, a partial there is a connection. connection. There's certainly a correlation, see, and I think there's a partial kind of causal correction, and you can certainly anecdotally see stories of, of people who sort of commit suicide, leaving behind suicide notes, sort of saying, you know, it's all meaningless, my life doesn't matter anyway, and, you know, we're all doomed in the long run anyway, and uh, I can't cope with it anymore, kind of. Um, so it's certainly in, in, in kind of communication terms you know politicians will talk about the, the need to create clear blue water between the different political parties people need to know you know what the difference between um, the, the Tory party and the Liberal party mm-hmm. is 
rather than sort of saying, oh, they're all politicians, they all, they'll all do the same thing, it doesn't really matter who I vote for, mm-hmm. kind of thing. And I think this is one argument that, that creates a very clear, kind of stark mm-hmm. choice. It, it says, it, it's not all just a sort of mushy muddle. Mm-hmm. You really have basic ideas that lead to big, significant differences in how you view the world, how you feel about reality, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that these ideas really do have consequences that are that are significant to think about, um, which is I- important in motivating people to be engaged in thinking about the big questions, to actually show them that it it matters. It's not just a word game for philosophers in ivory towers, you know. Um, what do you think about the Norwegian context for this kind of argument for nihilism? Is it do you find it relevant in? Uh, if you were discussing with, with, with non-Christian students, um, would, would the nihilism thing be uh, helpful? Yeah, I think it's... Um, it can be helpful to push them to recognize absolutes, mm-hmm. uh, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I like the idea, like... Confronting them, like, uh, mm. how do you feel about that? Is mm. it hard to live like that? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. I think it's one area where a film, again, can be very usefully mm-hmm. used. One thing I do in one of the Gimlet Con courses is show um, an anime, Japanese anime film called Ghost in the Shell 2. But it has a very kind of underlying materialistic worldview and lots of discussions about the implications of that worldview. Um, and it was very interesting, last year I showed the, the film to a bunch of students on the course and then we had a group discussion about the film afterwards and I think it was Margan who asked the first question and she said, okay, okay folks, how does has watching that film made you feel? <laughs> that was her first question. Rather than, what do you think about that? Or it was a, an, an emotional, what do you now feel like having been sort of submersed into this perspective on reality for an hour and a half or whatever? And everybody just kind of said, oh, I just sort of feel depressed and, and down and life is grey and you know, I don't really know what's real and the, the, the sort of emotional consequences of that way of viewing things and the discussions that were being raised. I thought that was very interesting. Um, uh, film is a great way of, of communicating the, the worldview at more of a gut instinctual level than talking about philosophy and so on, but to actually kind of immerse someone in, okay, here's a perspective on, on life that's taking this philosophy seriously. How does that make you feel? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That'd be interesting for, for a Christian filmmaker yeah. to make a point, not, not just necessarily proving God, but mm. seeing the consequences of yeah. atheism or yeah. Well, that's a, a, you know, a perfectly valid part of the discussion. As I was saying earlier, mm-hmm. you, you wouldn't want to just make an emotive mm-hmm. case for something. That would be bad rhetoric. Mm-hmm. But if, you're, if there's an underlying logic that's saying, look, at these, this way of thinking should have these logical consequences, mm-hmm. let me portray them mm-hmm. accurately, or look at someone who's, who's really trying to live it, a sort of exemplar of that worldview, and look at, well, you know, 
someone who really believes the worldview and lives it out. Let, you know, let's look at the life of this saint and the life of this philosopher and the life of this you know, from different worldviews. And it kind of there's something about being able to judge the, the, the ethos, the character, the, the the beauty or ugliness of the worldview from seeing it incarnated. Um, if if what, what movies would you know that? that would illustrate some of the nihilism. Mm. You mentioned the... Ghost in the Shell 2. Okay. Um, sequel Ghost to Ghost in the Shell. The Ghost in the Shell. Shell? Yes. Um, it's from Gilbert Ryle's uh, the, the Mind as the, the Ghost in the Machine okay, okay, idea. Okay, okay. Uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of sci-fi story about the future when you can replace your body with an automaton and you can replace your brain with a computer... Are you still a person? Mm -hmm. um, how do you know? How do you know what's real when you rely upon engineers to to uh, keep your brain calibrated mm -hmm. every few years mm -hmm. and so on? Um, and people can like hijack because um, everyone's brain is like connected to the internet and can go into virtual reality. Mm -hmm. Well, if someone can 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 hack into your brain from connected into the internet, how do you know what you're seeing is real? How do you know anything's real? Mm -hmm. um, it, Brings up a lot of issues about what what is a person, what is the what's the difference, if any, between robots and people. Are people just very complicated robots mm -hmm. that give the appearance of, of being people and having choice, freedom of choice, and so on? But we don't really. Are we just dolls? And Japanese culture is obsessed with dolls and human-looking robots and things. So it plays on a lot of cultural themes as well. Um, something like. Um, Uh, the movie Collateral, um, about the about Hitman who hi he hijacks a taxi. Tom Cruise, is Tom Cruise is plays the movie. plays the Hitman, plays about a guy, and he hijacks a, a taxi. Uh, is it Denzel Washington who's the no. taxi driver? Or? No, it's forget not, who the taxi it's driver Denzel, is. It's it's uh, African American. Yeah. To take him around from hit job to hit job, and they have various conversations in between. It's like, what you know? Why are you doing this stuff? And, and Tom Cruise's character was like, "Well, nothing means anything anyway. The universe is doomed to extinction. All I'm doing is extinguishing some of it a bit quicker than the rest. Doesn't mean anything." Um, and the tax driver is like, "You know, you're sick of the head guy. You know that you're murdering people. You yeah. shouldn't be doing." So this whole moral debate and perspective between a. a that says that you have a choice and there's, there's people have dignity and worth and a viewpoint that's nihilistic mm. uh, in head-on uh, collision with each other through this dramatised kind of story about a hitman that's doing his night's work. It's mm. very interesting. It's very interesting to see, to see the, the, the assassin justifying mm. his actions, his killing, by referring to, well, the universe is so big and we're just speculating. Yeah. The universe. Mm -hmm. He's giving you the big worldview as a justification. Normally, you would say, "Well, I need the money. I'm an egotistical." Mm. But he is justifying it by the big, yeah. big story. Yeah, it's kind of a Dostoevsky mm -hmm. novel on screen. Yeah. It's kind yeah. of Crime and Punishment mm -hmm. um, by Dostoevsky, mm -hmm. well, yeah. you know, yeah. in which you have the the nihilist who. Um, says in order to you know, really show the courage of my convictions I must go out and murder someone mm. to show that I, I know that this is not this is nothing.